Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. In this part of my conversation with Christian, who is a director and PhD student of theater, he describes his undergrad in human ecology and why he gave up studying and performing stand-up comedy in favor of directing. He then describes how his work challenges the autocratic culture of theater directors by tracing it back to its white European historical origins. We then explore his work on the intersection between theater and scientific narrative and how they are subconsciously shaped by our culture and power structure. We discuss why our world, which is increasingly dominated by science and technology and under the threat of climate change, needs better public scientific literacy and communication. Then we talk about science versus culture when it comes to food, medicine, and psychedelics. Okay, so so now you're back. So yeah, not back. Well, you didn't actually stay in the U.S. before you went to India, mm-hmm. but you went to Maine for undergrad, mm-hmm. and that was for visual arts. No, that was yeah. for this major called human ecology, mm. where I basically studied whatever I wanted, and so for four years, and then I did a project at the end. But that I mean, it's more complicated than that. But um, mm. what you do is that you choose your courses, and the idea is that they expect you to like integrate the knowledge from those those from those courses instead of just like being broad i think mm. of it more as like a like a weave mm. or like a braid as opposed to like something that's really spread out spread out yeah. so um, i studied a bunch of things uh, environmental policy uh, graphic design uh, sustainability food systems anthropology printmaking documentary that's why i know that some documentaries um filmmaking um a bunch of stuff uh, acting i took one acting class and then um Playwriting, etc., etc., etc. While I was there, I still wanted to do graphic design. I went in wanted to do graphic design and education. Then I um, decided to focus on graphic design and politics, and I wanted to do like infographics about like political structures. So it actually, I don't know if I told you, this, but I got a an internship and then a job at the UN. Oh wow! Doing that work, um, which I almost finished my degree early to go like focus on that. But uh, a lot of stuff happened and I decided I didn't want to do that in my life. And so I went back to school to finish my degree and I, um, for my internship, I kept working for them a little bit doing design stuff, but I went back and um, yeah, I did my internship. That was the craziest three months of my life. Those, those three months that I did at the, I was interning in Italy at uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. And like, it was... I was a kid. That was crazy. I turned 21 when I was there. I was, yeah. Um, and I went back and then uh, it was after I finished my degree that I decided I wanted to focus on theater. But mm. I was just, it just took me a long time to be like, okay, I want to, or not focus, but I want to study theater. Um, and then that's why I came here. There's a lot of stuff that happened in those four, five years that I was in Maine. Like I lived in Portugal and I made all these friends and I directed my first show and I went to the UN summits and I learned a lot of stuff about gender, I learned a lot of stuff about um, sexual assault, uh, about um, 
sustainability, the role of education and the arts or something. Like I learned a lot, those five. Probably, yeah, the, I think the time between like when I first left home up until like the second year of my master's have been like super formative. And I think like now I'm finally looking at like, okay, I learned all of that. And now like I can like make sense of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at the end of that, in my time there, I went to, so I went to study theater. And then I knew about the program here at UT. And so I applied um, both to NYU and here because it was still, my faculty told me to apply to two places. So if I got into both, I could pit them against each other, which is really good advice. Um, and then I came here. Mm. And I came here wanting to do not directing. I wanted to do um, stand-up comedy. Wait, 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 wait. So when I came... But a master's. Wait, a you... master's in performance studies. In so performance studies, but you wanted to study... The project was I wanted to make a stand-up yeah. comedy and like write about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But then I started directing and I haven't looked back since. Oh. Did you, have you ever done stand-up comedy? I did. I did three sets when I first moved to Austin and it was so hard. Um, one of the goals I didn't really have the appropriate support to do it. But um, yeah, it was just hard. I realized that like I don't... It's rare that you hear me say, like, that I like to tell my story the way I'm doing it, like, now. Yeah. And so, uh, and stand-up comedy is a lot of that, is you have to take moments from your life and, like, really pull them out, and uh, I don't think I'm in a place to do that um, safely yet. Yeah. It's not for, like, a comedy performance. I, and, I mean, it's also just that, like, when I have exchanges with people and I'm not thinking about it as a performance, like, I'm actually really funny. Or it can be really funny, but I just haven't really put them. And not just for me, but like for the people around me, they're like... Yeah, yeah, I find that there's a lot of things that you do without consciously thinking, which are pretty funny. Like what? Like I found a couple of things that you do to be like really funny. But what? Uh, okay, so the other day we were in the kitchen uh-huh. and someone that you do not like so much liked one of your comments on Facebook. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and the way yeah, that you yeah, yeah. reacted when you looked at the phone, you were like, Whoop. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was just really funny. <laughs> I know, it's just like, and I think part of what's that's funny, I mean, I took a class in, I was TA for a class in undergrad called the science of comedy, is that like, I feel like that like, is relatable to you or, or like, or, or, or like it, 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 it speaks to something in you. Yeah. And like, once you name it, it becomes less funny because yeah, it's like yeah, when yeah. you just explain the joke, the joke yeah, ceases yeah. to be funny. Yeah. But, um, absolutely. Yeah. Like, you took a class called the science of comedy? I was a TA. There was a course and then my advisor taught called the science of comedy. Oh, uh, shit. Wow. Yeah, that's a cool class. Wow. But, um... It's an amazing institution. I hope it survives the pandemic, but um, there's some good stuff there. So anyway, yeah, I um, I forgot what I was saying. Oh yeah, anyway, I decided not to do stand up. Um, maybe one day, but until then, I direct and I love directing and I'm good at it. And what I like about it is that I can make space for other people to do their job well mm. and to do and, and not just that, but like to approach their practice and what they do in ways that are, that have been for some people pretty transformative. Um, And so, yeah. Okay, so now I want to kind of transition to the topic of um, 
what you have been doing mostly during so you've been doing your masters here right mm -hmm. since you moved and are you in a phd program now yes. or mm -hmm. okay i'm about to start unless i get kicked out because i gotta be <laughs> in uh, one of my classes uh i'm gonna start the second year of my phd yeah mm -hmm. so what is it that you have been working on in grad school a lot of things, but my primary research project in my master's had to do with um, the Me Too movement mm. and trying to understand, or it was inspired by the Me Too movement, but trying to look at what are the mechanisms that allow theater directors in particular to abuse their power with their actors so much. And so it's a really very hard project um, because mm. one, there's not a lot of a lot written about directors, but two, the nature of the problem itself is that the power that directors and producers like Harvey Weinstein is unquestionable. And what I was doing is that I was questioning it and, and saying that's not natural, natural, or mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a given. Mm -hmm. And so I did some like reflective journaling and I did, a, I produced a bunch of plays. I produced four plays. Um, but really what it, like the, the crux of my research ended up being looking at, I theorized a little bit, but like the, the, most solid aspect of it was doing historical research mm. uh, that needs more fleshing out, but um, of why is the, um, that the reason that these directors become so abusive or so autocratic, not abusive, is that they, from the beginning, when the field was invented and created by these two European white guys, one Russian and one German, and then the Russian and French people that follow them, um, directors were able to just define their roles by themselves and like anoint themselves as directors and um, create the system by which they work with the actors, like the rules. And because it involves working with the actor's bodies, um, you cross the line between like an exercise and like a transgression Oh yeah, a lot more mm -hmm. easily. But because with every new iteration, each director that saw what someone else did and worked then created their own system and then they rarely credited the people that they took inspiration from. So because they were the ones who invented it, invented it, mm. uh, it they became like geniuses and nobody could question them. Mm. A little bit how like the myth of the scientific genius in science, you know, mm. that like Darwin mm. or Einstein, like they're seen as these geniuses, but they also picked up on a lot of work that came before them. Yeah. They just did it in a, in, in a way that was a lot more visible yeah. and it was really significant, but the, those men, and I don't know enough about Einstein's work, but I, I'm very sure this is the case. Yeah. Did yeah, not yeah. They definitely, at least not just in the popular imagination, but even among the scientific community, mm -hmm. the way that Einstein is perceived mm -hmm. as having come up. I mean, of course, that guy was kind of a genius. Right. But a lot of the things that he used had actually been derived by mathematicians that came before him. Exactly. And he like took some of that. He had friends explain those things to him. And mm -hmm. it was like, oh, I guess I could use this and this and blah, exactly. blah, blah. But the view that we have is a much more simplified view. Absolutely. Like all of it came from his brain. Exactly. Yeah. And the same, like, I mean, when I learned that Isaac Newton studied alchemy and like and like dark yeah. magics i'm like we remember him as the man who discovered gravity discovered gravity yeah, yeah, yeah. but the truth is that he was doing a lot of other things that we also don't remember yeah, yeah, yeah. and so yeah and so that image of like the and it's funny because the directors came around the time that this idea of like the inventor came mm. around uh like this this man that stood alone as like the sole creators of knowledge i kind of became interested in that and so what i'm doing right now is i'm 
translating that chapter of my thesis into a um a publication hopefully mm, uh nice. basically inviting that when we teach acting and, and especially directing we teach that these skills come from a particular place in a particular time mm. so that one directors know that they're not if they don't work for them then they can always change them yeah um so in building a little bit more awareness and then just outlining that like the reason that the profession is so prone to abuse is because one it was started by a guy who was royalty and he set the example for doing it in a particularly abusive way but two that if you don't teach people if you don't tell people what your methods are then they can't they they can adopt them but they can't question them and that's not good for the practice or for the people that they're working with yeah yeah if yeah. that makes sense yeah yeah and so that's essentially my um little bit my argument yeah um, that was my master's research and at the time uh, at that time but because of all the other stuff i've done and even my background in guatemala i've just always been interested in the intersection between theater and or not always became interested in the intersection between theater and science and that's my phd research yeah Um, yeah looking at theatrical naturalism and how scientific knowledge i think like the entanglement between scientific knowledge and artistic practice um because I firmly believe we're about to go into a phase and we are already in a phase where theater is trying to incorporate scientific principles about the environment. Yeah. Um, and I think it's useful to look back at like what the implications were the last time that we did it so that we can do it uh, more consciously. Not better or worse, but just more consciously. What do you mean the last time? Nat- theatrical naturalism. So yeah. the last time that theater intersected with science uh, meaningfully, or not the last, the last major... A time when theater interact in inter intermingled with science in a way that fundamentally changed theater was the time that we began to adapt Darwinism and um, other principles around evolution as a way to prescribe theater as a, a universal truth. But it was proclaimed to be universal, but because it generated in Europe, it created this version of reality and of naturalism that was rooted in the concepts of those time of that time. And it's the same with like the ideas behind psychology, right? Like, I mean, there's a lot of scholarship now that, like, you know, hysteria was an, a, a, a disease that was invented or created to, um, like, essentially, like, tame, like, unruly women. And so the history of, of scientific knowledge in psychology in particular has been done with, like, a normal mind, which is, like, you know, because of the subjects, like, a, a white European, mostly men, um, who didn't like who were also like very followed very really Christian values, and those were some of the ideals about like what the mind is in psychology that then were projected onto what realism is on stage and psychological realism. So I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying like that there's that that's what happened. But there's like a lot of like cultural conceptions about what is who is like the universal human subject that then were put on stage and was like this is realism, this is naturalism, this is the universal truth. I don't think the playwrights intended it to be as uh, colonial as it was, but because they weren't aware of it, yeah. they were like circulating it. And now, today, when I make um, when I make a play, place and I cast, you know, people like who look like you or who speak like me, uh, or who look like me if, if I don't look very white, um, then like that person's like not just cultural, but like I think epistemological questions about like. What does it mean to know? What does it mean to be normal? What does it mean to be... Um, what does it mean to do a play that's real? I think the pandemic also has put a lot of, into question a lot of like what it means for something to be feasible or real. I mean, it's a giant like black swan, right? In terms of complexity theory. 
but um, there's this Indian author, Amitam Ghosh, who uh, he's Bengali, mm. and he wrote this book called Climate Change and the Unthinkable, mostly chastising the novel, the model, uh, the modern novel, and sort of saying how like when the modern novel uh, tried to capture what was feasible, it also captured like um, a form of like um, plausible things that could happen that were in line with like bourgeois European values. Um, in the late 1800s and so like he writes that even though like he encountered he was in Delhi once when there was the actual like an actual tornado in Delhi and he's never been able to use that in his uh, writing because it reads like science fiction or because people say like well that wouldn't happen mm-hmm. and so his whole article his whole point is that because um, not just novels but many narratives we've had about what could happen have been so um culturally specific but we haven't realized that they are culturally specific um we've lost the ability to think the unthinkable like climate change or whereas if we had centered you know the people in um mauritius or island community pacific communities who don't build houses by the beach because um they know that the ocean rages and you know they build further in uh, but the white people and the colonizers and the hotels all built houses by the beach. Like if we, if we had sent there like those people's notions of possibility, the narrative around like where do we build houses would be really different. Mm. And so um, the centering of the of the of of the cultural knowledge um, shapes our assumptions about what's possible. Yeah. And I and, and that was a huge impact that I argue naturalism had in theater. We're just coming to terms with it now because now we're like, well, the, the climate is changing, animals are dying. It's not just about us, but um, so how do we do it well? And so and and it gets stuff like science fiction theater. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something that I believe. Okay. So what what really interests me is that. Yes, from a very young age, I've also been interested in science. Mm-hmm. But like you, I've also been interested in art. Mm-hmm. And I feel very interested. Okay, so when it comes to science, I feel very interested. Not Yes, I feel very interested in doing science from the inside. Mm-hmm. But I'm also very interested in looking at science from the perspective of a not scientist. Mm-hmm from the perspective of someone who does not identify as a scientist. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, for example, science communication is very important. Mm -hmm. Or the, uh, how do I say it? The, there's no word for this, but how you, you make something into art. For me, doing that to science is very important. How do you make art Mm -hmm. out of science? Um, and I think that as a society, we are, we are accelerating into a future, even our present, which is increasingly science and technology dominated. Mm -hmm. Like even for someone whose immediate reality doesn't have to do with working in science or whatever, compared to 20 years ago, we are surrounded by technology and science. So... For the vast majority of people to be living in such a society, I feel like it is really, really crucial for them to know more science. Mm. 
um, in order to have a more informed voice when it comes to uh, like political decisions and things like that. If you're living in a world that is facing climate change, mm -hmm. then I feel like a lot more people need to know the science behind it. But you cannot expect everyone to be talked to using a technical scientific language. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there exists this big discrepancy between the world that we live in and the perception of it by the majority. And I've seen this kind of uh, thing from the inside of the scientific community where oftentimes there's this dismissive, it's like, oh, this is not for the lay person or whatever. We're just going to keep on doing the science and here's what it says. Mm -hmm. And we don't really care about what other people think. Mm -hmm. There are some scientists who were, who are working in, for example, the climate thing, and they're like working towards promoting awareness of the general public. But a lot of scientists are content to just do the science and like, okay, I don't care about the rest. Right. Yeah. But I feel like that is very important too. I don't know where I'm getting at, but I'm just saying that it's it feels very important to be bridging the world of the scientist and the non-scientist because we're all kind of in this together. Mm. So that's something that's that's a world that you have kind of been living in. And from what I understand, like the, you've been working with theater as a means of communication mm -hmm. of stories of the world or about about science. So I would like to know what your thoughts are of what science looks like from the outside. And yeah. I mean, my, I just had this conversation and this mm. whole year I've been involved in a, in a project called Planet Texas 2015. And mm. I think more and more the problem is that I think there's a couple of layers to it but the very first one is that or no, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that I don't think mm. enough scientists understand that their concepts although they are um, describing um, physical environmental um, in that sense natural phenomena mm. the concept or the language that you use to this that are used to describe that is not universal like mm. the knowledge of the word, for example, there's this guy in Planet Texas that works um, with ranchers and they refuse to use the word climate change because yeah. in Texas because it's politicized and stuff like yeah. that. But they know the weather's changing. Mm. And the difference here is that like ranchers, and I would argue to your point that like people need to know that climate is changing. I think people know that climate is changing, like people who work the land, people who fish the seas, people who work in mountains, forests, deserts, like and even people who go to work every day who expect the climate to be a certain way, like my aunts, and it just isn't. Mm -hmm. So I think people know the weather is changing. It's just that the, the concept of the word climate comes from scient a scientific, to go back to the, 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 um, the cultural and like social and like historical factors that influence what a concept is. Like the word climate and that concept, because it, you can only perceive it over super long periods yeah. of time, yeah. unless that's passed down through stories, like it is in, in, in indigenous communities, mm -hmm. the only way to access that knowledge is through science. Yeah. And so just you're using a scientific concept and centering the scientific concept becomes more important than it becomes more important that the scientists are right than that people get it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's like we want people to call it climate. And it's been yeah. politicized. It's been because of people like Donald Trump. We want people to call it climate change. Um, 
but we get so lost in in the name climate that yeah. like if if they maybe they have another way they want to describe it for themselves and that's just as valid if that's going to let them respond to it and so i think not enough scientists understand that the that their work is embedded in politics whether they like it or not it is embedded in politics because like and it's not doesn't mean that it's always bad i used to be really against data mm. um and i have come around with that because i realized that like if the communities that are impacted by the technology have a means to use it then i think it technology in itself is not inherently bad um because back to your point like i think even before the last 10 years we already lived in a super like since we discovered fire we've lived in technology driven worlds it's just that now it's a, a much faster yeah um form of technology right like google just um, announced quantum computing right who knows what that's going to do to mm. and so and there's all this talk of 5g towers and stuff like that but before before that we had microwaves and we had cars without seat belts and we had people who smoked inside and so like to me it's less about needing to being able to communicate the science now and more about understanding that like all of those concepts come from a specific place and like as long as people get what it is yeah. to me the name doesn't matter that much yeah um and so if we can all get into a general agreement that like we are fucking up the 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 planet whether you want to call it the atmosphere mm. or the stratosphere or the ozone layer or whatever but like that that there is something that we need to change uh, so that the planet can exist longer i don't care what we call it mm. you know what i mean i'm less invested in it um when i studied environmental politics one of the things that we talked about so much is that most international environmental treaties fail because they either fail in the negotiation phase or they get negotiated, um, their implementation just never happens. That's what happened with the Kyoto Protocol. Yeah. That's what happened with the, like, the Minamata Convention on um, Mercury. This is the whole stuff I studied for my undergrad thesis. There's the one shining example was the Montreal Protocol on carbon depletion, uh, ozone depletion substances, because there was, first of all, an agreement that there was a problem. There was an agreement on what the problem was. And there's an agreement on what solution should be for that problem. Mm. I've, with climate change, we can't even agree that there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. And so there's value in having shared language. And in that case, it was the industrialized societies that were most at risk because it was like Australia and in, in Europe that were going to be most damaged by the skin cancer coming from that. There were also some of the most producing and consuming of the substances and the ones that could change that. Mm. So because the problem geographically mm. and culturally was more shared, they the 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 and because it wasn't as tied to like I mean there was industry behind HFCs but like it's mostly refrigerants like it, it's not nearly as lucrative as like carbon and yeah. oil yeah yeah so I think that's where language has become politicized and so to me I originally became interested in science communication but more and more I'm realizing that to me, I'm more interested in how do we highlight the ways that people already make sense of their environments mm. in ways that are empirical that mm. are observational mm. that are methodical yeah. it's just not published and it's not peer-reviewed but it doesn't mean it's any less valid yeah. because that's how they live their lives it's limited um but it's not any less valid yeah and so i'm more interested in scientists learning to listen um in that sense and, and knowing that like the, the things that because the things that people discover the, like the drugs that, that get synthesized in uh, in pharmaceutical companies, for example, this is probably a little different in physics mm. than it is in like in, in like life sciences. Mm. Um, but like the the drugs that get patented by like pharmaceutical companies 
they rely on the observational knowledge of, of indigenous communities to know which plants to even to know which compounds to even to begin looking for. Yeah. And so uh, and or if they arrive at it separately, it's the same kind of solution that another group already thought about because their science just has happened over like generations. Oh yeah, totally. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean a lot of those illustrations exist in India as well mm. in terms of like, you know, knowing that cumin is a natural digestive. Yeah, like Ayurveda or Exactly. Yeah. And so it, it isn't to say that like one should take precedence over the other, it's just that, like to me, mm. both all knowledge just has because it comes from specific not all, but like many forms of knowledge come from a specific time and place. They also have specific uses and and and, and scopes yeah. where they're valid, yeah. and many where they're not. Um, especially in when you think of something like climate or being associated with a PhD or a research university that already, because of the history of universities, that already puts barriers between you and the people you want to communicate yeah. with. Yeah. My family always. Um, I mean, I'm the first person from to even attempt a PhD. And I feel like there's a lot of barriers between that they feel they can talk to me about. Because yeah. I'm sure, I don't know if you experience any of that. No, not not really. I mean, I feel like I uh, sometimes uh, I feel like, yeah, a lot of the times I feel like I just won't be able to talk about my work in a way that is comprehensible mm-hmm. to them. But other than that, I don't really feel much of a... Okay, so I should explain a little bit that my from a very young age my dad um, was a geologist Mm. and from a very young age he really encouraged me to pursue science Mm. so with my dad i haven't had so much trouble like tell him he's always very curious and i like try to tell him and maybe he doesn't even understand but he's curious about it so yeah so i haven't had as much trouble there but in general i don't have a lot of conversations other than that about what I'm doing. Yeah. 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 Hi. Yeah. Um, what was it that I was just about to say? Oh, yeah. So, you know, what this brings to my mind is, so I read this book mm-hmm. called In Defense of Food. Uh-huh. Michael Pollan? By Michael Pollan. Mm-hmm. And he, it was basically about two things. Mm-hmm. One was about what, what, it, what is, what is good to eat? Mm-hmm. And food, not too much, mostly plants? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And the other was his kind of exposition of the history of how the U.S. food industry and culture became yeah. as confusing and, you know, just mind-numbingly confusing as it has today that everyone is relying on some kind of external experts, new diets keep coming up. He said, mm-hmm. this is a uniquely Western, maybe specifically American phenomenon. Mm-hmm. There are so many cultures around the world where they all eat different things. Like the Mediterranean diet is not the same as the Indian diet. Mm-hmm. So they eat all different things, but they're in general, in many dimensions, they're way healthier, yeah. much less at risk of heart disease and cancer and things like that. Yeah. And it seems less because of... Like, it's not like a specific thing that they're all eating. Mm -hmm. They're all eating different things. But also, food science is not at all all that prevalent in those countries. Like, in India, food science is not even a thing. Mm -hmm. Guatemala as well. Yeah. If it is, it's just in the industrial context. Yeah, yeah. So he was saying, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. The U.S. is this country where so much food science and technology happens, Mm -hmm. but perhaps coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally at all, health, like... You know, food health is not all that great. So you were saying, you know, there are a lot of um, 
perverted motivations that are going into the research that's happening. Mm -hmm. The food science is not really number one. It's not, uh, it's not neutral. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is uh, contaminated with uh, yeah. like motivations for like, okay, we are manufacturing this thing. And Which people... is not transparent. Like, yeah. Not yeah. But not transparent. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. he was saying, so he, what he was advocating for is that if you look at different cultures around the world, these cultures have filtered across so many generations they have filtered what is good to eat and what is not good to eat from experience and handed down that experience so he was advocating for more food culture and less food science, science. Mm -hmm. and i feel like the same thing could apply to medicine as well like mm -hmm. you're talking about medicine um, and I read that book and it made a lot of sense to me. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. we are talking about things like food and medicine, mm -hmm. which are things that we put in our body mm -hmm. and our bodies are very complicated, natural we don't fully things. Understand yeah. Them, yeah. So complicated inside once you read some biology mm -hmm. that we are deluding ourselves if no matter how smart we are and how sophisticated our labs and our research techniques, mm -hmm. that we know that because of a couple of years of research, we know exactly what this product is going to do to our body. Yeah, we know. Yeah. yeah. So the only way or at least a much more reliable way is to go and ask a culture that have been dealing with this food or this medicine for so many mm -hmm. thousands of generations. Um, and that's also where the concern of genetically modified food comes like, okay, you figured something out. How, right. how long have you been eating this? Right. <laughs> you know, do you know what, exactly. what this does? Yeah. Um, yeah. And personally, I want to, um, do, uh, research, uh, psychedelics mm -hmm. and psychedelics is something that science is really getting into and has gotten into in the past, mm -hmm. you know, manufacturing psychedelics, etc. But a lot of these psychedelics or the knowledge of psychedelics comes from indigenous cultures hmm. like a lot of latin american cultures like hmm. in brazil and stuff like that yeah so so i feel like it's very important mm -hmm. to be learning from them and mm -hmm. you can't always with them yeah learning learning with them i went to a psychedelics conference in new york last october mm -hmm. and uh it was this Native American person who kind of came and gave a talk about his perspective on this new resurgence in uh, research in peyote and all mm -hmm. of these kinds of things. And he was saying, you know, for us, it's not just a little medicine. It's part of our culture and it's not just the medicine. It's all of the real human elements that surround it. Mm -hmm. It's not just the chemical. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, if you take it out of that culture mm -hmm. and remove it from all of that context and put it in a pill, mm -hmm. I cannot promise you that it will help you anymore. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. that is something that science and technology tries to do. It's like, we'll go to the essence and we'll put it in a bottle mm -hmm. and we'll give it to you. And I don't think it's... No, because that... it's not about that. And that's another thing too, that like a lot of these more complex ways of being both indigenous, but also artistic, um, challenge the notion of a unit. Yeah. What it means to be more than a unit or what does it mean to have like, is the, I mean, in complexity theory is like a system is not just the sum of its parts. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think more, more, more in the critical theory sense and indigenous studies is that like, it's not just like the object, it's the entirety of the context around it. Yeah. Both in terms of like the other people, but also like the time of the day, how long it happens. Like, and that's, that's where like, 
to me, performance is really interesting, like mm. being in a room with people, because it is that complexity, that it isn't about like the same, it isn't about, I mean, um, we used my, um, I, the first play that I directed at UT, we, um, we did, um, uh, I think with telephones, and it was just really awesome thing that I'm really proud of, but um, we, it wasn't about the individual cell phones. We had 50 iPhones, but like we could have had 50 iPhones, but it was like, it was those 50 iPhones with in that space at that time with those people mm. that create, that you could have taken one out and it would have completely lost the meaning that it had on it. And I think to me, it's not just about the meaning, but about the function of like what that meant. Um, and that's where like, I really do see a convergence between like being in the world as like a performance maker because it makes you pay attention to all of these factors yeah. that, as you say, scientists tend to be hyper-focused yeah. because of the way the knowledge is built yeah. and the discipline exists. Yeah, just isolate exactly. factor X. Exactly. Yeah. It's like isolate, isolate, which is why I would never, I'm glad I didn't become, I think I would have been a really good doctor, would have been an awful scientist otherwise, that I cannot isolate, I think, from its context. Yeah. It makes it really, it's really, really, and I'm sure it's, other people struggle with that too. Yeah. But I see more relationships between things. Yeah. Than, um, no, I think, yeah. I think it's within the community of science, there are different cultures. Mm -hmm. So one of the real cool things that happened uh, during my time in my current research group mm -hmm. is that one time I heard my advisor Mm. talk about the different kinds of scientists mm. and it was kind of a joke but he but said I, yeah i feel like oh science can be done in like one of the... and so he had this dichotomous ways of uh dividing scientists into like groups and he said okay so there's one dimension lumper versus splitter like are you a scientist that is looking for holistic theories that integrate things or, or are you a scientist that are splitting yeah. So there's lumper versus splitter. That's interesting. Yeah. Then there's like the driller versus the scratcher. He was like, there are people mm -hmm. that go really deep into one theory and the, there are people who scratch like multiple mm. different things. It was really interesting for really me to hear his whole classification. Yeah. And as he was talking about this, he would say, I think I'm this kind of mm -hmm. scientist. And I was mentally checking. Yeah. <laughs> and like pretty much along all of those dimensions, I lined up with him. I was like, yes, that's I'm funny. in the right research yeah, group. That's good. So, so, yeah. so he sees our work as being more like a lumper versus splitter. So we try to connect different things together. So I feel like that's, uh, that's, that's a very important pillar of science, not just yeah. isolate, but also connect things to because it's not just about science like it's that's how the world is yeah. and if you have to have a faithful account of the world mm -hmm. you have to acknowledge that things don't work in isolation mm -hmm. they're a very complex interconnected web mm -hmm. exactly. yeah yeah thanks for joining us today in the room of lives in the next and final part of my conversation with christian he shares his thoughts on whether he feels at home in Guatemala and the U.S., and we conclude with his observations on awareness as an artistic process.